Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of our World News Podcast. This podcast, along with all of our other news episodes, are part of Atlas News. Check out the Lethal Minds Journal, a veteran and active duty publication focusing on foreign and military affairs, art and culture. Take a look at the journal's Bulletin from the Borderlands, a bi-weekly foreign affairs publication for multiple talented intelligence analysts and independent journalists. Head over to lethalmindsjournal.substack.com or Instagram at lethal.minds dot journal to see more please consider supporting us on patreon patreon.com slash analyze educate ko-fi ko-fi.com slash analyze educate or analyze educate.substack.com so since this is a part of atlas news if you are listening to this on the atlas news app you listen a day before everybody else if you're listening to this on my feed you're listening a day after it gets released on atlas news With that being said, we'll head into the episode. Okay, just a quick note to get started here. I am recording this on Saturday, just after 4 o'clock in the afternoon in Northern California Pacific time. So keep that in mind. A lot of things may happen in between now and the time that this gets edited and released. Obviously, the world is a very busy place in these past few months have been very busy specifically. So again, I might miss something, but I'll hit you guys uh, on the next episode with whatever I miss in between recording this and when it actually gets released. Looking at Europe and Eurasia, Russo-Ukrainian war throughout the week, multiple outlets have been claiming that President Volodymyr Zelensky is planning to fire Ukraine military commander-in-chief General Valery Zeluzhny. At this point, that has not happened yet, but it has been long theorized that it would. And again, uh, really in the past week, those stories have been really picking up. The two men have been not so secretly at odds for months at this point. Zeluzhny, who by all accounts is loved by uh, the soldiers, has been receiving some of the blame for the political class and the failures that they made over uh, 2023. That includes some of Zelensky's failures specifically. Additionally, it is well known in Ukraine that Zelensky has been fearing a presidential challenge for some time, specifically from Zeluzhny. The general is incredibly popular in Ukraine and likely even more popular than Zelensky. A poll late last year showed that 92% of Ukrainian respondents trusted the general, while 77% of those same respondents trusted Zelensky. On Thursday, Ukraine released footage of a recent attack on the Russian Tarantul III-class Corvette Ivanovets. The ship was hit by multiple Ukrainian waterborne suicide drones, and footage shows the ship being sunk off the coast of Crimea. Ukraine's main intelligence directorate says that the ship was hit by the servicemen of Special Unit Group 13 in uh, Lake Danuzlov which is on the western side of Crimea. This is yet another blow to Russia's Black Sea Fleet, which has its home port in Sevastopol. Moving on, the European Union has approved a proposal that will set aside 50 billion euros or about 54 billion US dollars in its budget to aid Ukraine over the next three years. The proposal was dead for a long time, but Hungary, who is the main opposition, recently reversed its stance. Moving on, the two main issues that Ukraine is currently facing on the front lines, according to both analysts and Ukrainian officials, are one, a lack of infantrymen, and two, a lack of artillery ammunition. 
On the ammunition front, Defense Minister Rustem Umerov says that his forces are dealing with a, quote, critical shortage of shells. Ukraine cannot afford to fire more than 2,000 shells a day as opposed to the Russians, which can fire 6,000 shells a day. Huge disparity there. For additional context, U.S. made M109 Paladin self-propelled howitzers near Bakhmut, for example, are unable to receive high explosive rounds. And right now they can only fire smoke rounds, which uh, definitely diminishes their utility on the front lines for sure. Uh, Patrick Fox, also known as Real Cynical Fox on Twitter, made an interesting argument lately. And I want to see what everybody thinks. I'm actually going to put a poll uh, at the bottom of these show notes for this episode. Uh, I know that works on Spotify. I don't know if that shows up for other apps, but if you're listening to this and you want to take part in this poll, I would really appreciate what you guys think. Just because I'm interested, this actually turned into a pretty big argument. Um, I did a poll on this question on my Telegram as well. And uh, right now, it uh, looks like people are kind of evenly split as to what their opinions are. So over half a million military-age Ukrainian males have left the country since the war began and have fled to Europe since the invasion began, I should say. Under current martial law in Ukraine, it is illegal for men aged 18 to 60 to leave the country without special authorization. European leaders say that a Ukrainian loss in this war would be an existential threat to the continent. They've really been ramping up that rhetoric in recent months, uh, with many leaders saying that if Ukraine loses, then, uh, you know, insert European country here is going to have to fight the Russians on their turf. The British have been saying that, the Germans have been saying that, uh, the Poles, uh, a lot of European leaders around the continent have been saying that. However, their actions aren't really matching up with that rhetoric. At that same time, they will say these things. They allow hundreds of thousands of conscription-age men to seek shelter from the Ukrainian government and mobilization. Now, Patrick Fox argues that if European leaders are serious when they say that Putin will push into the rest of Europe if Ukraine loses, then they should send these men back to Ukraine to fight against the Russians for the sake of the whole continent. Now, I want to know if you guys agree with that argument or not. Personally, I do, and that's not me giving an opinion on what I think of the war itself. That's not me giving an opinion on the Ukrainian government or government in general. I just think that if Europe is saying that this war is an existential threat to the safety of the entire continent, then their actions have to match that. And right now they're not. But again, I'm interested to see what you guys think. So if you could take part in that poll, I know Spotify will have it. I'm not sure about the other ones, but uh, I do really want to see what you guys think. Moving on to the Indo-Pacific region, looking at South Korea, a U.S. Air Force F-16 fighter jet crashed into the sea off the coast of the country on Wednesday. The jet was from the 8th Fighter Wing, and this is actually the second crash of a jet from that fighter wing to crash since December. Thankfully, that pilot was able to safely eject. Moving on to Central Asia and the Middle East, looking at Pakistan. This is coming from HM Intelligence. Former Pakistani Prime Minister Imran Khan has been sentenced to 10 years in prison. The former politician and cricket star has been fighting multiple legal battles since being ousted from office in 2022. Khan and... His party, PTI Vice President Shah Mahmood Qureshi, were both convicted of exposing official state secrets. In August, Khan was also separately sentenced to three years in prison for corruption charges. 
However, that sentence was suspended, and it's really not clear if this one will be as well. Khan is very popular in Pakistan, and any arrest of him would likely see widespread violent civil unrest as it has in the past. Khan and Qureshi both maintain their innocence. Khan claims that the legal cases against him are part of a wider U.S. plot to target him for his close relationship with Russian President Vladimir Putin. His sentencing comes just before Pakistan's general election, which will be held on the 8th. Moving on to the Israel-Hamas war report of casualties, we got 27,131 and 66,287 for Gaza. For Israel, we have 1,442 killed, 10,580 wounded. For the Gaza operation specifically, we have 224 killed in action and about 1,200 wounded. For the West Bank, we have 381 killed. The vast majority of those are Palestinians and 4,250 wounded. For Lebanon, we have 226 killed. For Syria, we have 109 killed. And for Egypt, we have nine injured. That gives us a total of 29,289 killed, 81,126 injured. According to the Committee to Protect Journalists, the number of journalists and media workers that have been killed in this war is 85. The vast majority of those were Palestinians killed in Gaza. That number is 78. Additionally, four Israelis and three Lebanese journalists have been killed as well. And additionally, 16 journalists have been killed. I'm sorry, 16 journalists have been wounded, four are missing, and 25 have been arrested since the war began. Clearance operations continue around Khan Yunus, that's the second largest city in Gaza in the south, and also in central Gaza, clearance operations are still ongoing there as well. In the north, insurgent actions from Palestinian groups has picked up recently as Israel has established a presence throughout the area, uh, but again, it's hard to clear all these areas. You have tunnels and individual buildings, so they're going to be at this for a while. Border clashes between Israel and Lebanese Hezbollah have continued, not a whole lot to note. Over the week, members of the Israeli police's National Counterterrorism Unit, otherwise known as Imam, carried out a raid inside the Iban Sina Hospital in the West Bank city of Jenin. The troops were disguised as women and medical workers when they stormed the hospital armed with assault rifles. The Israeli government claims that they killed three Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad operatives. That includes Mohammed Shalmana, who they claim commands Hamas in the city of Jenin. The forces recovered what appears to be a Glock 19 pistol from the raid. Notably, there was no exchange of fire during the engagement. All three men were killed before they could open fire on Israeli officers, although seeing as only one pistol was recovered, it's likely that only one of those three even had the capability to do so, and that has led to some criticism of the raid. Um, some people are saying that these guys were executed. Um, again, I'll leave that up to you guys. I'm not going to make that determination for myself, but again, uh, that fact has led to some criticism, whether that is warranted or not. Over 100 other hostages are still being held in Gaza. Ceasefire talks involving the return of these hostages are still ongoing, but not a whole lot to note on that front either. Since October 17th, there have been at least 160 drone and rocket attacks on U.S. troops in Iraq and Syria. The Pentagon has confirmed 133 casualties so far. The U.S. military has launched 10 response strikes. After claiming responsibility for the attack that killed three American soldiers in Jordan, we covered that last week, the popular mobilization forces of Iraq have ceased all attacks against U.S. forces, or I should say had 
seesaw attacks against U.S. forces in the region. According to Tammuz Intel, who, in my opinion, is reliable when it comes to reports coming out of Iraq, the PMF and other Iranian-backed militias have evacuated their positions and headquarters buildings. Senior commanders have also gone into hiding or left Iraq altogether. On Friday morning, multiple U.S. Air Force aircraft under U.S. Central Command conducted airstrikes in Iraq and Syria targeting Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, Quds Force, and multiple Iranian-backed militias. More than 85 targets were struck by over 125 munitions. Facilities hit include command and control centers, intelligence centers, storage facilities for rockets, missiles, and UAVs, and logistics facilities. Among the aircraft used were multiple B-1B Lancer heavy strategic bombers that made a continuous flight from the U.S. to the CENTCOM area of responsibility. Based on open sources, targets hit in Iraq appear to be Al-Sakak, Al-Qaim, and Ashkat. In Syria, targets appear to be Ayash, Derzor, Al-Mayadeen, and Al-Bukamal. Thanks to Ian Ellis on Twitter for his infographic, five of those targets have been confirmed by the New York Times. Reuters claim that at least 39 people in Iraq and Syria were killed, most of those being militiamen. And uh, just a note, if it's not clear already, this, I should say these strikes were indeed retaliation for the attack on Jordan, officially. It was initially reported that F-16s from the Royal Jordanian Air Force participated in the strikes. However, Jordan's military denied those claims, and that denial came after a measure was introduced in Iraq's House of Representatives to stop selling subsidized crude oil to Jordan. If you don't know, Jordan buys some oil from Iraq, and again, they get that uh, with the help of government subsidies from the Iraqi government instead of buying it at market value like, say, the U.S. would. As previously stated, Iranian-backed militias evacuated their positions and command centers over the week, so the exact effect of the strikes is not clear. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin said in a statement that these strikes are the, quote, start of our response, and quote. He says that President Joe Biden has directed additional actions against the IRGC and their linked militias that will, quote, unfold at times and places of our choosing and, uh, the guys in the uh, bulletin from the Borderlands chat know, but I'm actually about to start a drinking game for every time someone in the administration says at times at places of our choosing because they say that a lot uh, and they don't actually do anything most of the time. So, And surprise, surprise, deterrence was not achieved as the Islamic resistance of Iraq claimed three more attacks against U.S. troops on Saturday. That is one in Erbil, Iraq, and two against U.S. troops in Syria. Those attacks have not been confirmed, but uh, whenever the Islamic resistance of Iraq claims an attack, it's usually legit. So I have pretty high confidence that those attacks actually happen, although we don't have a whole lot of details. Moving on, Yemen-based Houthi rebels have continued their activity in the region. There have been at least 49 attacks or attempted attacks against commercial shipping and allied naval assets in the area since October 19th. U.S., U.K., and French forces have intercepted or otherwise struck 11 anti-ship ballistic missiles, four anti-ship cruise missiles, six land attack cruise missiles, 28 anti-ship ballistic missile launch sites, one radar site, one waterborne drone, three small boats, 89 drones, including 14 on the ground, and one surface-to-air missile system. 
On Wednesday, the Houthis claimed that they struck the Arleigh Burke-class destroyer USS Gravely with a, quote, naval missile. Now, Gravely was not hit, but it was attacked, and by all accounts, it was a pretty close call. Gravely was forced to down the missile using its Phalanx close-in weapon system, otherwise known as SeaWiz, as the missile came within one mile of the ship. Now, those who don't know what the Phalanx SeaWiz is, it's a 20-millimeter Vulcan cannon, so think of it as like a really large uh chain gun you don't want to use that if you don't have to right uh this thing came again within one mile of the ship uh, i think that's like 0.86 nautical miles and that is too close for comfort for something that is moving as fast as a missile most interceptions of houthi munitions have happened from anywhere from like five to ten miles away so uh less than one mile is yeah, not something you want to happen a lot, for sure. Later that day, Arleigh Bird-class destroyer USS Kearney shot down one Houthi anti-ship ballistic missile and three suicide drones within 40 minutes. Now, it was not explicitly stated if the Kearney was targeted or not. And lastly, on Wednesday, U.S. forces struck and destroyed a Houthi surface-to-air missile system that was preparing to launch. This is the first known operation of U.S. forces striking Houthi air defense systems since the war began. On Thursday, American F-18 Hornet struck 10 Houthi suicide drones that were preparing to launch in a UAV ground control station as well. Later in the day, U.S. forces shot down a drone over the Gulf of Aden and also destroyed a waterborne drone that was heading to the international shipping lane in the Red Sea. Also, Houthis launched two ballistic missiles at Bermuda-owned container ship MV Koi, but both of those missiles impacted into the water. No one was injured. On Friday, USS Kearney shot down a drone over the Gulf of Aden, but it is unclear what that drone's target was. And then later in the day, U.S. forces destroyed four Houthi drones that were being prepared to launch. And then over the week, the European Union actually formed a defense coalition that will launch Operation Aspides on February 19th to protect shipping in the region. As of right now, the leader of the operation will likely either be France or Italy, but the headquarters for the operation will be in Greece, and it is likely that the Hellenic Navy will participate as well. Got a Naval Forces posture update in the region. Thank you to Intel Schizo on Twitter for his infographics. The Israeli Navy has two corvettes near the Sinai Peninsula. Egypt has two warships off of its coast in the Red Sea. The Dwight D. Eisenhower Carrier Strike Group is in the Southern Red Sea. There are 10 ships in the Gulf of Aden under the framework of the Combined Maritime Forces. China has three ships in the Gulf of Aden. Iran has two ships in the Gulf of Aden. Iran also has four ships off of its coast and two ships in the North Arabian Sea. India has three ships operating in the North Arabian Sea as well. The British Royal Navy has five ships near Bahrain. And the U.S. Navy and Coast Guard have 18 ships in the Persian Gulf and in the Gulf of Oman. We will take a quick break and we'll be right back. Okay, we are back with the Americas. So Bulletin from the Borderlands released on the 2nd. For the Americas, we discussed the status of the Kenyan-led multinational mission to Haiti and also El Salvador's election, which is going to be held Monday. Or sorry, Sunday. Sunday. Tomorrow. 
And then also actually for Europe, uh, myself and John from Defense Bulletin, we took that over this go around and we discussed two major issues that Ukraine is seeing right now. Obviously, the lack of manpower and then the lack of ammunition. So if you guys are subscribed to the Bulletin, it's only $250 a month. Uh, please go and check that out. If you have any feedback, I'm interested to hear it. I feel like we did pretty good on those pieces put a lot of work into it. Um, I'm glad with how they came out. So again, any feedback, we definitely appreciate. Moving on to the U.S., got a presidential race update. These are poll averages from 538. Biden's approval is at 39%. His disapproval is at 55. Both of those remain the same from last week. Trump's favorability is at 43. His unfavorability is at 52. Both of those also remain the same from last week. Looking at the Democrat primary, Biden is at 72. He is up two points. Marion Williamson is at 6%. She is up one point. And Congressman Dean Phillips is up 4%. He is up one point as well. And actually, quick note, I completely forgot that the Democrat Party is having the South Carolina primary Actually, right now, uh, today, I completely forgot about that. For some reason, I thought it was the same day as the Republican primary. So uh, right now, official final results are not out yet, but it looks like Biden is going to take this by like well over 90 percent. Uh, not a surprise at all, but just figured I would give you guys that update now instead of waiting until next week. Um, but I will actually hit you guys with the the final results once those come in. But again, expect a complete total uh, blowout for Biden. Looking at the Republican primary, Trump is at 72%. He is up one point and Nikki Haley is at 17%. She is up three points. Again, that's a pretty, pretty uh, big disparity though. Looking at polling for the Republican primary in South Carolina, which is going to be held on the 24th, Trump is at 62% and Nikki Haley is at 32%. So Trump is down three points. Haley is up five. Now, keep in mind, uh, Nikki Haley is obviously from South Carolina. She was the governor before she was the uh, UN ambassador under Trump. So again, I expect her to do um, better than she did in Iowa and in New Hampshire, but I definitely expect Trump to win by uh, leaps and bounds still, as does pretty much everybody except for Nikki Haley, it seems like. All right, we got some layoffs this week. Just a quick note, Zoom is laying off 150 of its employees. That's about 2% of its staff. And uh, the company Okta, which is another tech company around Silicon Valley, they're laying off 400 employees, which is about 7% of its staff. Moving on, this is coming from Mason Meinzinger. Sorry if I mispronounce your name of Atlas News. The U.S. Air Force has selected five companies to develop and compete in the Collaborative Combat Aircraft, otherwise known as the CCA program. Those are Boeing, Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman, Enderal, and General Atomics. The program seeks to develop an autonomous aircraft that can operate alongside and act in support of a manned aircraft. The Air Force plans to spend $5.8 billion on this project over the next five years and eventually plans to deploy at least 1,000 CCAs. According to the drive, the price to produce a single aircraft is expected to be anywhere from $20.5 to $27.5 million. The selling point of these aircraft is that they will be able to reduce threats to manned aircraft. So we'll see how that program plays out. Next, this is coming from Evan Barridge of Atlas News. The U.S. Navy has decided to lower its recruiting requirements. 
As of January 26th, a high school diploma or GED equivalent is no longer needed to enlist in the U.S. Navy. For those that don't know, you do need a high school diploma or GED equivalent to enroll in every branch of the U.S. military, apparently, except for the Navy as of right now, pretty much. Recruits will still need to pass in entrance and physical exams. The U.S. military in general is facing a major recruiting crisis with the Marines and the Space Force being the only two branches in the past couple of years that have hit their recruitment goals. The Navy and the Army have been hit the hardest in this regard, and we have covered this issue in the past. Two years ago, the Army also dropped its high school diploma or GED requirement, but that only lasted for a couple of weeks before they reinstated it due to public backlash mainly. Okay, moving on. This is coming from Joaquin Camarena of Atlas News. You probably know him as Sinotalk. Over the week, the U.S. and China held their first joint meeting over a working group to address the issue of fentanyl precursor chemicals. The U.S. delegation consisted of the Deputy Homeland Security Advisor Jen Doskal and other officials from the Department of Homeland Security, Justice Department, State Department, and Treasury Department. This group seeks to enhance cooperation between the two nations on the issues of the financing, distribution, and production of narcotics, mainly fentanyl. The drug alone has killed roughly 100,000 Americans each year, and the vast majority of the precursor chemicals needed to make the drug come from China. Chinese companies have been charged with knowingly providing these chemicals to Mexican drug companies, sorry, drug cartels, for the purpose of producing fentanyl within the past year. Those cases are still active in the U.S. federal court system. Many have theorized that these companies engage in the trade of these chemicals with the knowledge and consent of the Chinese government. I actually wrote on this for the bulletin a while back, so you guys could check that out if you want. That's probably no more than six months ago off the top of my head. On Wednesday, a hangar under construction collapsed at Boise International Airport in Idaho. That collapse killed three and injured nine others. Five of those are currently in critical condition, so uh, definitely a horrific situation, and we're praying for their families. Also on Wednesday, the House of Representatives voted to ban members of Hamas and Palestinian armed groups that participated in the October 7th attack in Israel from, quote, seeking any immigration-related relief or protections. The bill specifically notes Hamas, Palestinian Islamic Jihad, and the PLO in its text. It passed 422 votes in favor, two against, and one abstention. Representative Rashida Tlaib, the Democrat from Michigan, and Representative Cory Bush, the Democrat from Missouri, voted against, and Representative Delia Ramirez, the Democrat from Illinois, voted present, not an abstention present. Moving on, an Iranian trafficker with deep ties to Iranian intelligence has been charged by a grand jury indictment in the U.S. in a murder-for-hire plot. Naji Sharif Zandashti, 49 years old, has been accused of hiring a member of the Hells Angels Motorcycle Club to kill an Iranian defector living in Maryland. Zandashti is currently believed to still be in Iran, and U.K. and U.S. authorities believe that the network he runs operates on the orders of Iran's Ministry of Intelligence and Security. That network allegedly engages in assassinations and kidnappings, as well as drug trafficking and hacking. MI5, which is Britain's domestic intelligence agency, says that it has uncovered at least 15 Iranian government plots to kidnap or assassinate people inside the UK, although it didn't give a time frame for when those plots were uncovered. One of those plots includes a solicitation from the IRGC unit 
840 to pay 200,000 US dollars for the assassination of two journalists with Iran International, which is a station that is thought to be critical of the Iranian regime. That channel actually had to move to the United States as it no longer sees operating in Britain as safe. Going back to Zindashti, the indictment claims that he discussed the assassination with Damien Ryan, 43 years old, between December of 2020 and January of 2021. Ryan is a Canadian patched member of the Hells Angels. They use the encrypted service Sky ECC to communicate, and the two allegedly agreed on a payment of $350,000 for the killing and an additional $20,000 in expenses. Ryan and a third defendant, Adam Pearson, were arrested on unrelated charges before the killing could be carried out. And that's pretty much all we got on that story, and that is all I have for you guys this week. I want to thank you all for supporting this podcast. Of course, it means a lot to me. You can find this podcast on your favorite apps. That includes Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen, we're there. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Analyze Educate. That is all one word. You could also find us on Telegram, same name. Please consider supporting us again on Patreon, Ko-Fi, or Substack. All those links can be found in the show notes below. Be sure to leave us a five-star rating on the app used to listen to this podcast. That helps us out a lot as well. And I will see you guys soon.